You are listening to the Stand with Dignity podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. But it's very difficult to follow, firstly, the Dua Kumail might be the most perfect prayer ever composed, and then to follow Kira. But we are going to speak tonight about Lady Zainab, so maybe tonight there is nothing but beauty here in this place. This is the first of two sessions on the Lady Zainab. We'll have one tonight and then perhaps, God willing, one on Saturday night. Um, so let me begin with with a context. Let me begin by telling you what I think as a non-Shi'i, non-Muslim, and as a Christian theologian and historian. I think that the truth is, while there is massive de devotion to the Lady Zainab throughout the Shi'i world, and not only the Shi'i world, there is disappointingly little research, academic research, into the moments, the most important moments of her life. And this always leads to gaps in people's biography. And biographical gaps sometimes lead to myth. Even though myth is not always a bad thing, because a myth always contains grains of truth around which people build. But myth is also the place where people build their golden calves where they create theologies or spiritualities around people that often transcend all boundaries and make those people unreachable and, and impossible to imitate. The name we give to that type of writing is often hagiography. And hagiography, recounting the great stories of the awliya, for example, hagiography is not a bad thing, but it needs to be watched carefully. Furthermore, I think also as an outsider, I think that the reinterpretation of the person of Lady Zainab during the Iranian Revolution has presented us with just the same problem. A woman who is so heroic, so revolutionary, that she's impossible for anyone to imitate, those of us who are not involved in the great struggles of history. In the same way that I'm not absolutely convinced of Shariati's portrait of Lady Fatima, in spite of all its many merits, I'm not convinced that it's a completely authentic presentation of the Fatima we find in the classical sources, so too I suspect, again as an outsider and as a personal opinion, that the Zainab who is sometimes presented to the Shi'i world, either as the fearless revolutionary, the, the, the heroine who's got no emotions at all, it might be possible it might be useful as a sort of socio-political or religious narrative, but it fails for me to reflect the beauty of Lady Zainab. And it removes her from the grasp of ordinary people like myself and makes it impossible for us to try to admire her properly and imitate her. So I often talk about um, what I call a Zenabian praxis, no such word as Zenabian, it's a word I invented. By a Zenabian praxis, I mean, I mean a, a way that we can describe Lady, Lady Zainab, that people can imitate her life in some ways, admire her life, but also use her as some sort of model, a way that we could put her back into the reach of ordinary people who, who aren't facing big struggles on the world stage, but every day have to engage with life and with ethics, and with telling the truth, and with being honest, and who suffer an authentic martyrdom sometimes because it's really difficult in the modern world to be honest. 
and to tell the truth and to speak what is just, even though it causes us pain. So I would propose that at the heart of what I want to say tonight, this idea of Zainab at Karbala, at the heart of it, I think there are two distinct journeys. There's the historical journey that she makes from Medina and it ends up in Karbala and then back from Karbala to Kufa and to Damascus and from Damascus maybe to Medina or maybe to Egypt or maybe staying in Damascus. But also I think there is what we could call the existential journey. That is, I think that Zainab comes to full blossom on the field of Karbala. That what she does and says there has been, is the result of a whole preparation of her life. She was created and prepared for that moment. In the same way that Shariati talks about Fatima becoming Fatima, I think that Zainab becomes Zainab. It's, in with this, it's inside of this existential journey, this becoming the people we are created to be, that she becomes for me a universal model. Like her brother, transcending all the boundaries of religion and, and of culture and of language and presented by God, if you like, to the world as a model of, of fulfillment. So I have in my writings and research on, on, on specifically on Lady Zainab at Karbala, I've identified what I call these 14 Zenabian moments. And we will look at each of one, each of them very quickly tonight. The, the vision she has at a place called Khuzaymiyah. Then the fact that she hears the sound of the approaching army. Number three, she hears a terrible lament sung by her brother, Four, she has to be calmed down by Abbas al-Abbas and by Ali bin al-Hussein because she is in a complete panic at this stage. Five, she is in the tents when Shimmer threatens to burn them. Number six, the death of Ali al-Akbar bin al-Hussein. She intervenes onto the battlefield at that moment. Number seven, the death of al-Qasim bin al-Hassan. He's the boy, I think, who she tries to stop but she, she can't, st can't stop. Oh, no, no, he, he, he's the one with the broken sandal. Number eight, the killing of Abdullah bin al-Hussein. Maybe she's present there, maybe not. Number nine, the emergence of this boy, Hussein orders her to stop him, but he, she can't stop him. Number 10, she comes out onto the battlefield to challenge those killing her brother. Number 11, Ali bin al-Hussein has his life saved, not by Zainab but by an enemy soldier. We will see that moment. Number 12, the heads of the martyrs are sent off to Kufa. Number 13, she preaches her first ikhtijaj. Not a khutbah, it's a protest, which she preaches in the streets of Kufa against the residents. And then she faces her first major, her first major encounter with Ibn Ziyad and finally she faces Yazid and her second protest. So I thought if we've got time, and if I go on too long, then somebody must just stop me. It's quite easy to stop me. I will try to, to say a few words about each of these moments because this is for me a chronological journey. And I've taken much of this from At-Tabari because At-Tabari takes, and he's a Sunni historian, one of the earliest historians, but he takes much of his information from Abu Mihnaf who is a Shia, and writes really the earliest maktal that we have. It doesn't exist anymore. 
Abu Mikhnaz Maktal, except in strands and fragments in later Sunni historians, Baladuri and Tabari. So I've used Tabari for a good chronology of Lady Zainab. The first is that on the way to Karbala, so pre-arriving, the first significant moment, the first time we begin to recognize her presence on the journey, is a story recorded not by Tabari, by, but by a man called Khawarizmi, a Sunni Hanafi scholar who writes a maktal, and also by later Shia scholars also. But it gives us a glimpse of Lady Zainab's pre-Karbala psychological state. He hears this terrible lament on the air at night while they are staying overnight at Khuzaymiya. Now, now, that lament, voices on the air, that's quite an important theme that runs through the whole of the Karbala story, and we don't always know who the voices belong to. But what interests me at this moment is her mental state, and I say this because you're going to see a transformation psychologically in this woman. So her mental state of great worry about this lament she's hearing is of importance to us. I know that we know elements of her life. I think that in many ways the trauma that Lady Zainab suffers is the most important thing for us. A, because many people suffer trauma, but B, because we're able to trace how she deals with that trauma thanks to God. So that is the first, um, the first incident. It's not in Tabari, strangely, but it's in Khawarizmi, that's a misspelling, I'm sorry, and Ibn Shahrashub, and it gives us a sense of her state, her mental state. She's anxious and she's frightened. The second incident probably takes place on the afternoon, that is Thursday, the 9th of Muharram. There's some dispute in the text about what the day of Karbala was, but I maintain that the, the 10th was a Friday, the 9th was a Thursday. So on the afternoon of Thursday, the 9th, probably just after prayer, Zainab is again distressed by the sound of an approaching army. And she goes to find her brother who is sitting on a chair with his legs drawn up. He looks as though he's cleaning his sword, but he's not. He's actually asleep in front of his tent, dreaming of his grandfather. So he wakes as she comes to him to say, shouldn't we be doing something about this? And he says to her that he's had this dream of his grandfather who has said, you are coming to us. This doesn't please Zainab at all. It distresses her even more. So she's heard the voices on the night air. She's been distressed by an, an army, a force arriving, and now she's equally distressed by, by the, the, the dream that her brother has had. But then there's a third moment, and that is that her brother recounts to her or, or laments, sings this terrible dirge in front of his tent, and it's a, it's a, it's a lament against time. Um, and those who are Arabic speakers can read it for themselves. It's a lament against time. Shame on you, time, as a friend. Because by sunrise and late afternoon, how many of the companions, how many of the seekers will be fallen and will belong to you? But the matter, of course, is with the majestic, for every living creature is a traveler on the path. 
This lament is overheard by two people in particular. It's overheard by Ali bin al-Hussein, who is sick, and it's overheard by Lady Zainab, who is nursing him. And once again, we are told by Ali bin al-Hussein that she has to be calmed down because she is so horrified by this lament. So we've had already nothing but trauma. We haven't yet arrived at the nothing but beauty yet. Nothing but trauma and horror in the life of Lady Zainab. I myself, and this is my own personal opinion, I'm not convinced that she knew at this moment that Karbala was the end. I think she knew that her brother was going to be a martyr. I'm not convinced she knew that this was the moment. And therefore we see her great distress, pleading with him to do something, suggesting all kinds of things to him. The next moment is, is, the, is one of the moments which we meet the very elusive and secretive Al-Abbas. He is a very difficult figure to track down because he hides behind Al-Hussein and other members of the Ahl Bayt. But at this moment, Al-Abbas and Ali bin Al-Hussein are sent to calm down the women because they have heard the farewell address of Al-Hussein. This farewell address is transmitted by most of the important Shi'i books. It's quite a long address. And it's an address that is going to be rejected by those who hear it because he gives them freedom to leave. He says, they're not after you, they're after me. So, so use the darkness now. So it's obviously the night of the 9th of Muharram. Use the darkness to escape because it's not you they're looking for. It's me. Make use of the darkness, each one of you, grab hold of the hand of a member of my family and disperse. And the first person to protest at this moment is Al-Abbas, followed by his brothers. We will never do such a thing. But then immediately, Al-Hussein has to send Al-Abbas to calm down the woman because they've heard this farewell address and for them it is traumatic. Almost immediately after this, we have this terrible moment when Shimmer threatens to burn the tents of the woman and the children. His threat is so bad that not only is it met with absolute disbelief by Al-Hussein, he is horrified, but even Shimra's own soldiers are horrified that he would do such a thing. And it turns out, according to Abu Mihnaf, the Shi'i scholar, it turns out that it's a member of his own army, a man called Humayd bin Muslim bin Azdi, who says to him, don't do this, don't burn the tent of the woman. So, so I maintain that the life of the young imam-to-be is saved on this occasion, the first occasion, by a member of the enemy force who says to Shimmer, why would you burn the tents of women and children? There are going to be two further moments when this young imam's life is going to be saved. It's a threefold salvation before he begins to function and speak as, as imam. And so in a sense, his life is going to be saved twice by the enemy and once by his own aunt. Then comes, um, and we, so remember the name Humaid. We're going to come back to Humaid bin Muslim. He's a very shadowy figure, but he's also one of the best eyewitnesses of the battle. And he notices little details. We'll see this in a moment. The next um, moment is the first major death. It's the death of Ali al-Akbar. So one of the things I discovered trying to research Karbala and Hussein was nobody seems to agree on which son is which. The texts are all against each other. So I follow Mufid because al-Mufid insists 
that there are these sons, each of them is named Ali. So, so there are all kinds of discrepancies. How many children did Al-Hussein have? Who was the oldest? Who was the youngest? Which one became the Imam, Zain al-Abidin? Which of the sons was he? So following Mufid, it seems most likely that Al-Hussein has six sons. At least three of them are called Ali, deliberately, to annoy those in authority who don't want the name of Ali mentioned too often. So it's really a, a response to the vilification of the name of Ali. The first, says Mufid, is Ali al-Akbar. He's killed at Karbala and he's in his late 20s on the day of his death. That makes good sense considering the dates of birth that are given for him. Second is Ali al-Awsat. That's Zain al-Abidin. He's the middle Ali. He's the one born around 38 who was probably about 23 years old at Kabla, maybe a little younger, and very, very sick. And then thirdly, there's Ali al-Azra, who you've heard a great deal about, I think, of, of late, killed at Karbala as an infant. So three sons. The oldest one, Ali al-Akbar, is not the future imam. It's the middle one who is going to become imam. But this is a moment when we have what is the first of three interventions by Lady Zainab. She leaves her tent at the moment of his death to weep over him. And it's the first of three times she's going to leave the safety of her tent and go onto the battlefield and, and to mourn. But she doesn't do it for every nephew. She does it for this nephew. And then later on, perhaps for the, the youngest child. The next moment is the emergence of a boy called Al-Qasim, who is a son of Hassan. The texts say that his face is like the first splinter of the moon. But it also says his sandal strap is broken as he walks onto the field. The person who sees that is our friend Humayd bin Muslim, the enemy soldier who is an excellent eyewitness of the tiniest details. It's him who tells us that he could barely hold a sword and that his sandal strap is broken. Curious for me is that when he dies next to his uncle, there is no recorded intervention of Lady Zena. He inter intervenes for the oldest of the boys, of, of Hussein's sons, but for this nephew, we're not told that she came out of her tent. And then number eight, the moment number eight is the killing of Abdullah bin Hussein, the infant son. And I only mention this because some of the accounts in the Shi'i text say that, that Al-Hussein handed the child to Zainab for a moment. But not all the texts say that, so it's a very difficult thing to pinpoint. So I simply mention it without much comment because the majority of texts don't mention her at this particular moment. The ninth moment of Lady Zainab at Karbala is her emergence second time because a second time a little boy who is unnamed runs onto the field and Al-Hussein this time attempts to get Zainab to stop him. And he is too fast for Zainab. He runs past her shouting, I will not be separated from my uncle. So we know immediately, almost certainly, this is another of Al-Hassan's sons. And sometimes he is named. But he is killed eventually. As he's killed, he cries out for his mother. And his death causes terrible grief for Al-Hussein. So this is the second emergence 
of Lady Zainab. She emerges to attempt to catch this little boy before he can get onto the battlefield. And like Umm Salama the other day, she fails to do the thing that she's asked to do. There's going to be one last great emergence of Lady Zainab, and that is she comes out of her tent at the moment that her brother is being killed. It's while he's being attacked from all sides and he's alone, because it seems by this stage that even Abbas has been killed, that she emerges at a very difficult and very dangerous moment in the battle in a defiant intervention. So startling that even al-Baladuri, who hardly tells us anything about Zainab, he's a Sunni historian, slightly earlier than, earlier than Tabari, he hardly mentions her, but he does mention this moment that she comes out of her tent to challenge those who are killing her brother. 30 years before Tabari, al-Baladri is writing, and he again mentions our friend Humayd bin Muslim, the eyewitness who tells us that her earrings were moving rapidly as she strode out onto the field. I always trust eyewitnesses who notice tiny details because you know they're paying attention, they're not making it up, and this Humayd he sees her, her earrings moving. On her lips is this terrible lament, would that the heavens would cover the earth, would that the mountains were leveled. When she sees Umar bin Sa'ad, she says to him, are you just going to stand there while they kill Abu Abdullah? And ostensibly he turns away and begins to weep. He doesn't answer her, but he is shamed by her. Then she cries out, is there not a single Muslim among you? Nobody answers her. And immediately after that, Shimr has to berate his own soldiers to finish the job because it seems absolutely clear that there wasn't a single soldier who actually wanted to kill Al-Hussein. And he screams abuse at them, Shimr, until finally the job is done. Immediately after the battle, we have the 11th moment of Zainab's intervention. And it's... it's Ali bin al-Hussein and the other woman are being herded out of the tents. But when Shimr sees this young boy, he means to kill him. And once again, Humayd bin Muslim dissuades him and says to him, surely you wouldn't kill a boy. I know that in Arabic there are different words to describe boys of different age. It's always very interesting to hear how Ali bin al-Hussein is described because he was about 23 years old, very sickly. And so for the second time, his life is saved and he together with the woman are driven out. So, so those are the three moments that his life is saved. He's saved when the tents are going to be burnt by Humayd bin Muslim. He's saved again at the end of the battle by Humayd bin Muslim and he's saved thirdly in the court of Ibn Ziyad by Lady Zainab. I'm not sure why Tabari would have any reason to invent these stories about him being saved by an enemy soldier, whoever this, this uh, who made bin Muslim is. He seems to be a vacillating, slightly nervous member of the army. But he's on hand when Ibn Ziyad sends a message ordering that water be barred on the 2nd of Muharram. He's present when Ziyad, Ibn Ziyad sends Shimmer to take over control of the army. He's present at the death of Al-Hussein's eldest son, plus the unknown nephew. 
He's able to describe the clothing that Al-Hussein is wearing at the moment that he dies. He observes exactly who it is who robs the body of Al-Hussein. He serves as a messenger of Umar bin Sa'd after the battle. He accompanies the head of Al-Hussein to Ibn Ziyad, where he witnesses it being treated badly. And he is a bystander in the court when Ali and Ibn Ziyad have this dialogue. So Humayd bin Muslim, for all his wickedness, is a very important witness. The next point is that the heads are, are, are sent. So it seems Friday the 10th of Muharram, Al-Hussein is killed. On the Saturday, the 11th of Muharram, the bodies are buried. And on the 12th of Muharram, which was a Sunday, the departures begin of the women and the children from Karbala to Kufa. This is the moment in many books when Lady Zainab sings her great lament about her brother being half of my heart. I think that Tabari is wrong because the bodies have been buried the day before already. And the lament is sung at the sight of the bodies. I think that she sung that lament the moment they were driven from their tents, the woman, and she saw the bodies lying on the ground and she sings this dreadful lament about her brother. So on the 12th, Sunday the 12th, the woman and the children are sent off to, to, um, to the, the court of Ziyad. I will hurry up because I'm going over time. Lady Zainab then makes her first ikhtijaj, her protest on the streets of Kufa. So I argue that it's not really a khutbah from a minbar, it's, it's a, an act of protest. And, it, and of course there are now books, Kitab al-Ikhtijaj, I think is the one, the book of protests, which record all of these. It's an indictment of the residents of the city. In a few moments she's going to indict Ibn Ziyad himself, but she begins with the residents of the city. But we will talk about this uh, on our last night together, the moment in between with, with Ziyad. A last point is, is entering the courts of Yazid. Yazid was about 34 years old when this happened, and he lived a few years later, he died two or three years after Karbala. He is a dictator whose mood swings from great distress to to mockery and to laughter and back to distress again. And I am fascinated from a psychological point of view about why it is that unlike Ibn Ziyad, who is just cruel and ruthless, Yazid has these mood swings. So when the head is, a, is brought in, Yazid begins to weep and recite poetry and is distressed by the way it's been treated. I think he displays an intensifying realization that he's done something unforgivable and he begins to blame his governor and all kinds of other people, pulling himself out of the situation, distancing himself from the battlefield. He calls Ibn Ziyad Ibn Sumeya, which is a terrible insult. And it's not the only time that he's going to be called that. It just means his mother was not a virtuous woman. He expresses his regret to God. He curses Ibn Ziyad and asks that God should be merciful to Hussein. This is very curious behavior. The, the, the survivors are dispatched. They arrive there. As they arrive, the one who comes to announce the prisoners says something terrible about the woman, something unrepeatable. And Yazid turns on him and says, no, the only evil thing here is what your mother gave birth to. It's a stinging rebuke of the man who brought the woman in. Unlike Ziyad, Ibn Ziyad, who talks with Zainab first and then with the new Imam, 
Yazid talks to the Imam first, and then he notices Lady Zainab. Why? Because she intervenes when a dreadful man tries to steal as his, perhaps as one of his servants, but more likely as one of his wives, Fatima, daughter of Hussein. There is a mistake in many of the Arabic texts which call her Fatima, daughter of Ali. No, it's not Fatima, daughter of Ali. It's Fatima, daughter of Al-Hussein, according to Mufid and others. This Syrian with red hair is determined that she will be his wife, and Zainab intervenes, saving her life as she did the life of the young Imam. So, so there are these definite 14 moments that I identify which show a woman who begins with weeping and fear and sorrow, but when she walks onto the battlefield the first time, the Sunni scholars say she looked like the moon rising. She had transformed overnight or been transformed from a fearful woman into this courageous speaker. I want to end by offering you Yazid's final words to the young Imam. I offer them to you because it's very difficult to understand how he spoke to him. So these are the words recorded by Tabari. If I had been with your father, he would never have asked me for anything without me giving it to him. This is Yazid talking about Al Hussein. I would have protected him from death with all my power. I would have let my own children die before Al Hussein. But God has decreed what you have seen. So there is the turnaround from lament into a ruthless dictator. Then he changes again and he says to the young Imam, write to me and tell me whatever you need and I will make sure that you get it. I think it would be wonderful if a psychologist or a psychiatrist was to do an in-depth study of Yazid to discover what it is that was going on inside of this man. So that's enough for tonight. <laughs> I'm over time. Tomorrow we will talk a little bit about Al Abbas and then we will finish with Lady Zainab again, God willing, on Saturday night. Thank you.